All right, well, good morning, Weymouth. Good morning. We've officially gone from summer to winter here, so that's great. Uh, thanks for, for braving the, the cold October morning and coming out here. Uh, we're, we're happy you've joined us. My name is Chris. I'm the pastor here. If I haven't had a chance to, to greet you yet, I'd, I'd love to talk with you after the service. Uh, we're excited to see what God has for us this morning. Uh, as we get started in worship, we'll just spend a, a few moments uh, in silent prayer in the quiet of our own hearts uh, just to prepare ourselves for worship. So please bow and pray with me. Prophet Isaiah says this about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And Father, as we worship you this morning, we praise you for your sovereign, gracious will. As we come to the end of our study in Mark this morning, we praise you how in the death and resurrection of Christ, we see how uh, the one who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities, who bore our griefs and our sorrows, who was taken away by judgment and oppression for us. We thank you that in him your will prospers, that he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, that Christ is risen and reigning as our King, as our Savior. So help us to worship you now with joy, with fullness, with wonder, with astonishment, as we remember, as we learn, as we we preach to ourselves the wonder of who you are and all you've done in Christ. Help us to do that together this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Please stand and we'll sing together. Oh. 
Be seated. All right, we just have a couple things to bring to your attention here this morning as we uh, go along in our worship service. Uh, one thing we've added to our welcome table, we'll also be adding a digital version of this to our website this week, is just a question box. Uh, now, this is not a suggestion box, it's a question box. Um, <laughs> The, the, the purpose of this is, you know, a month ago we had a question and, and answer night here at the church, and uh, we thought it was a helpful time, a helpful uh, discussion together. And so we, we put out this box, and we'll add a link on our website uh, for people to just go. If you have questions about God, about the Bible, about church, about culture, about life, uh, following Christ, uh, or just being in the world, um, we, we invite you to, to ask any questions that you might have about theology, whatever. We want to be a church where, where questions are welcomed. Um, so we put that box out, we'll put that link on the website, and, and the purpose of that is for people to, to ask, to write down and ask anonymously any questions you might have. But we'll keep an eye on both of those spaces as we go, and if we get to a point where it seems like we have a, a handful of questions, a good number of questions, then we'll uh, set up a, another question and response time uh, after a Sunday service in the near future. So uh, our hope is to just have kind of an ongoing dialogue of people asking questions and then creating opportunities to to, to respond, not necessarily to answer, to respond to some of those questions, because uh, we want to recognize that we might, the answer to some questions might be, I don't know, let's think about it together, let's, let's study this and, and work it out together. Um, so you'll see that on the table, you'll see that on the website, feel free to take advantage of that. Uh, secondly, on October 28th, we are having our fall festival here at the church, this will be a time of, of, of fun, time to invite our community, invite friends, family, neighbors. Uh, to come and do some trunk or treating. There'll be some soccer clinics, some, some food and, and games and different activities. Um, one thing we're looking for for that is we're looking for, for volunteers who uh, would want to come and, and decorate their cars, decorate their trunks, hand out candy to kids and maybe some adults as they, uh, as they walk around. Um, so uh, we're asking if you'd like to do that, that you'd sign up ahead of time just so we know who's doing that. We know we have space in the parking lot for you uh, rather than just showing up that day. So uh, there's a, you can sign up for that online at weymouthchurch.com. There's also a, a paper at the welcome table you could sign up. We just ask that if you're planning to do that, please let us know ahead of time so that we can arrange the parking lot accordingly. Um, as we continue on, uh, we will be moving into a time of prayer here. And we want to keep some things in mind as we pray. First, we want to keep uh, praying for Carol Kinnebrew as she recovers from a successful heart surgery uh, a week ago. 
Uh, we also will be praying for, for Connie Sanook and Ken, Ken Signor as they uh, undergo treatment for cancer uh, and for others in our church family who might be struggling with, uh, with sickness and physical challenges. Uh, we also are going to continue to pray for uh, a fellow like-minded uh, local church. This morning we'll be praying for, for Living Hope Church, uh, for, uh, for Matt Bazemore, who's the pastor there, and, and his team, and also for a global church. But then this morning we'll be praying for uh, the country of China, which is uh, 15th on the World Watch list, uh, most dangerous country in which uh, to be a believer, to be a Christian. Uh, so with all that in mind, please bow and pray with me. Well, Father, we thank you for that reminder this morning of how great your mercy is, of how uh, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us, and how in our risen Savior uh, we have hope that we can come before your throne boldly and confidently uh, with humility and joy. So let, be, let that be our, our security, let that be our strength this morning as we worship you and this week as we, we serve and obey you. And Lord, we lift up to you those who are, who are struggling with physical challenges. We pray for Carol, help her to continue to recover and get her strength back following her surgery. Um, we thank you for the doctors and nurses that have cared for her. And we uh, just ask that you'll strengthen her, you'll strengthen Russ during this period of, of recovery and rehabilitation. We also lift up Connie to you and, and Ken to you as they uh, go through this treatment. Let it, let it be effective, Lord, according to your will. Let, uh, let the treatments work and, and help them to be able to... to recover and get better, Lord, but ultimately we ask for your will to be done, that you'd glorify your name through them, that you'd work through Ken and Connie and, and Vic and others and their families to, to be a light for the doctors and the nurses, um, the people that they're interacting with as they go through this care. Please use them to lead more people to Christ. Help us to learn from their example as, as they walk through this time with you. And Lord, we thank you for, for local partners, for other churches that are, are preaching your gospel, that are looking to your word. We thank you for, for living hope and, and the partnership we've, we've shared in the past in youth ministry, the fellowship we share with, with Matt and his family here at Weymouth. And uh, we, we thank you for the, the church in Lodi that's currently hosting them. And as they continue to, to pray and work out uh, the sale of their, their old building and uh, the, this new season of life as a church, give them your wisdom, strengthen them, use them, grow them. Uh, as, as followers of Christ, lead more people uh, to trust in Christ through them uh, and use them to glorify your name. We also lift up uh, believers, the, the church in China, to you as they face uh, so many challenges that uh, they, they lack so many freedoms that we take for granted here, Lord. Strengthen them, equip them as they, they navigate uh, surveillance, as they navigate hostility towards uh, Christianity, as they navigate uh, new laws that are being developed every day that inhibit their, their religious freedom, Lord, strengthen them. Give them wisdom on how to engage with one another, how to connect with other believers in the world, how to uh, get your word out to more and more people. Lord, we thank you for their example of, of faithfulness, for the example of how you're working, how you're growing that church in that country in astonishing ways, even through persecution and, and hostility and hardship. So Lord, continue to do that and give us a sense of that in our own country. Help us not to look to, to comforts or look to, to, to worldly powers or authorities to be our, our security or our strength, but help us to trust in your greatness and your sovereignty and your rule and authority to know that you can work through exiles, you can work through those who are being persecuted to spread your word, to share the gospel, to grow your church. So we pray that you'll continue to do that in China, you'll continue to do that here 
in Medina and beyond, and, and you'll do it all over the world, that more people might praise your name, that more people might come before your throne, rejoicing in your mercy, rejoicing in your grace, in the perfect work of your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to invite the kids on up to the front now to, to spend some time here in the catechism. We're looking at catechism question number 45. So, oh, we're going to play this game again. Ah, I'm going to go right here. <laughs> I'm smart as you this week. Welcome, guys. Good morning. Ooh, I like your satchel and your turtle. Nice. All right, so we are on question number 45. Raise your hand if you can count to 45. These numbers are getting higher. I'm, I'm not confident that I can uh, count to 40, so I'm not going to risk it. You cannot? That's okay. I'm not sure I can either. Um, so we are on question number 45. Last week we started talking about baptism, right? We talked about how baptism is a, is a symbol of how we've been washed uh, in Christ, through faith in Christ. And this morning we're going to talk a little bit more about baptism. And this is our question. Is, is baptism with water the washing away of sin itself? And the answer is no. Only the blood of Christ can cleanse us from sin. Now my question for you guys right now is, uh, raise your hand if you've ever made a mess in your house and then your parents uh, made you clean it up. You ever make a mess in your house and you had to clean it up? Yeah? Every, literally everybody? Great. Perfect. Me too. Um, it used to be my mom who made me clean up the messes. Now it's my wife who makes me clean up the messes, um, which is fun. Um, but sometimes, right, I'll spill something or I'll make a mess or I'll get something on the couch and, and I'm like, oh, I'm just going to go to the sink and get some water and wash it off the couch, off the upholstery. And, and my wife, Laura, she, she, she'll look at me and she'll say, what are you, what are you doing? Why are you just using water, right? You need to use this cleaner. You need to use hydrogen peroxide. You need to use this other thing. Don't just uh, wash the mirror with water, Chris. Don't just do that. That does nothing. You need to actually spray it with something, right? That's one thing Laura has really taught me as we've been married is she's taught me how to properly clean things, which is kind of scary that I didn't know how to do that for like 22 years of my life. Um, but what, one thing I've, I've learned from her is that when you, depending on the stain, depending on the mess that you make, you need the right materials to clean it. You need the right materials to, to cleanse it, right? You need window cleaner or mirror cleaner. You need the right thing to get stains out of couches and chairs. Um, and in the same way, when we, when we talk about the stain in our own hearts, the stain of sin, the stain of how we've uh, rebelled against God, how we've broken his commands, how we've tried to replace him with other idols and other gods in our hearts, um, th there's only one cleaner, only one thing that can get that stain out, that can cleanse us, that can wash us clean of our sin and, and make us able to stand in God's presence and have a relationship with God. And it's not water, it's not soap, it's not laundry detergent, it's not anything like that. It's, it's the blood of Christ. So when we talk about baptism, baptism, when someone goes into the water and comes out of the water, that, that water itself isn't doing anything to cleanse us from sin. But what that water is doing is a symbol, it's pointing us to the blood of Christ. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he shed his blood for us. He died in our place. He took the punishment that we deserve for our sins. Just like if you spill something and your mom or dad might send you to your room or give you a punishment for, for making a mess or doing something wrong, we deserve ultimate punishment from God because of our sin, because he's good and he's just. Um, and we deserve that punishment. But Jesus came and shed his own blood to free us from that. He took that punishment in our place on the cross. So if you believe in him, if you trust in him, we can be forgiven for all the messes we've made spiritually. We can be forgiven for the stain of sin in our hearts. We can have that washed clean. We can be made free of that. And we can come into God's presence uh, and have his forgiveness. Not because water washes it away, not because anything we do washes it away, but because the blood of Jesus washes it away and cleanses us from our sin. 
So there's one thing that can make us clean from sin, and that's the blood of Christ. That's the work of Jesus, our Savior. Does that make sense? Yeah. Any questions about that? Yeah. Oh, you do? Yeah, Okay, find me after the service and, and show me and do it for me. I'll be very impressed, and I'll learn how to do it myself. So that's really good. All right, uh, let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your, your mercy, for your grace, for this news that even though we are full of sin, even though we are stained by uh, rebellion and, and brokenness, that we've made a mess of things spiritually, we thank you that you sent your son to wash us clean, to shed his blood, to cleanse us from our sins to bring us forgiveness so that we can come into your presence, we can have a relationship with you, we can know you as our Father. We thank you for that, Lord. Open our eyes to the truth of this. Help these kids, help all of us to, to see anew the wonder uh, of Christ's shed blood for our sins. Help us to believe it if we haven't already. Help us to rejoice in it, to preach it to ourselves if we do believe it. Help us to share this wonderful news with others, that there is cleansing, there is washing, there is uh, forgiveness in Christ our Savior. In whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys, good job. Uh, we're going to line up now behind Mr. and Mrs. Pixton for Children's Church, or you can go back to your parents, whatever you are going to do. And then the, the rest of us will, will stand, and we'll sing another song together. So please stand and sing with us.
Amen. Well, I invite you uh, to turn your Bibles uh, for the last time to the book of Mark, at least the last time in one of these services for a while, hopefully not for the last time in your life. Hopefully you'll continue to, to read Mark and, and read other Gospels and other parts of Scripture, but uh, we work, we've come to the end of our, our series here in, in Mark's Gospel, looking at these 16 chapters. Uh, we looked at the, the crucifixion account uh, last week, and we uh, will pick it up here in verse 40 of chapter 15, and we'll read to, through uh, chapter 16, verse 8. So Mark, 15, uh, Mark 15, 40 through 16, 8. That'll be our text for us this morning. And if, if you're someone who likes to, to read ahead and likes to know where we're going next, uh, uh, next Sunday as we gather together, God willing, we will be uh, starting a new series in the book of Jonah. So if you would like to read ahead, you can look at Jonah chapter 1, which we'll at least do a portion of next Sunday. No promises that we'll do the whole chapter, um, but we'll at least get, get things started. But uh, this morning, we'll, we'll, finish, we'll finish strong here in Mark's Gospel. Uh, so follow along as I read, starting in chapter 15, verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the, from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Amen. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Well, gracious Father, help us now as we come to your word. What we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For the sake of your Son, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, one of my favorite uh, classes when I was in high school was uh, AP Composition. AP Composition. And uh, the reason I really liked that class is because we had a, a great teacher, a teacher named Mr. Cotton. 
Now, Mr. Cotton was a really uh, funny, really smart guy, and he was such a good teacher uh, that most everybody in the class, when we took the, the AP test at the end of the year, most everybody got uh, a five on the AP test, which is the highest you can get. All right. Now, that might sound kind of like a humble brag this morning uh, from me, but uh, don't give me too much credit because when I got to college and I, I tried to submit my AP credit to, to get credit for the class, uh, my college refused to accept the credit, so I had to go and take composition all over again my freshman year of college. But it's okay, I'm not bitter about it. 15 years later, it doesn't still keep me up at night or anything. Um, but one thing that Mr. Cotton taught us about that year in AP Comp was he taught us how to write persuasive essays. He taught us how to write papers that begin with a, a thesis and then in the body of the paper, you try and argue and prove that that thesis is correct. And when we first started this series in the book of Mark, we, we observed at the beginning that the gospel of Mark is a persuasive document. In the gospel of Mark, Mark is writing, he's recording the historic facts about Jesus' life and ministry in order to persuade people of his thesis. His thesis, which we see in the very beginning of the gospel, in the very first verse of chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And in this gospel, Mark is recording the events of Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection because he's trying to persuade his readers to believe the gospel, to believe the good news that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. And Mark's gospel reaches its climax in chapter 15 when the Roman centurion who witnesses how Jesus died on the cross, he declares, surely this man was the Son of God. See, the centurion, he makes the confession that Mark is hoping all of his readers will make, that Jesus is the Son of God. And Mark goes on to finish his argument by recording what happened after Jesus' death on the cross, by giving us the astonishing announcement of the resurrection of Christ. And in Mark's gospel, this account of the resurrection, we see a group of women who are faced with the reality of the empty tomb where they are powerfully confronted with the same truth that the centurion saw, that Jesus is the Son of God, the ultimate king whose authority extends even over death. And these women, they have a powerful response to this announcement. And in their response, Mark ends his gospel with a question for the reader. He ends his gospel with the question, how will you respond to the astonishing announcement that Jesus who was crucified is the risen king. How will you respond to the astonishing announcement that Jesus who was crucified is the risen king? This is the question Mark is leaving us with here at the end of his gospel. And we'll see how this question unfolds in the text by looking first at the announcement of the resurrection and then at the astonishment of the resurrection. So announcement and then astonishment. First, announcement. In verses uh, 40 to 47 here in chapter 15, Mark, he, he picks up the narrative of Jesus' death on the cross by uh, introducing key witnesses who verify the reality of Jesus' death. He names three women who looked on from a distance as Jesus died on the cross. These women were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and, and Joseph, and then Salome. And Mark, actually, he's going to refer to these women as witnesses three times in the text here. First, he lists, he lists them as witnesses to Jesus' death. 
then in verse 47, he reports that the two Marys witnessed where Jesus was buried. And then finally in chapter 16, these three women are the first to witness the empty tomb in Mark's gospel. And this is important because in the first century, Jewish law demanded that at least two or three eyewitnesses were present to, to verify or legitimize testimony in court cases. The law required at least two or three eyewitnesses. And so Mark gives us two or three. He records how these women were the eyewitnesses at each of these pivotal moments at the end of his gospel, at the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. And notably, these witnesses are all women. This is notable, this is striking, because in the culture of the first century, it would have been shocking for Mark's early readers to see that his key witnesses to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection are women. Because according to the Jewish law at that time, women uh, were not accepted as legitimate witnesses in court. They couldn't speak in court. Their testimony wasn't valid. And the Roman culture, likewise, also had a low view of women's credibility. And, and according to the historian Richard Bauckham, this culture, it viewed women as overly emotional, as unreliable, especially when it came to matters of religion. This was the cultural viewpoint of that day. Listen to these words uh, from the second century Greek philosopher named Celsus, words with, uh, which Rebecca McLaughlin, she quotes in her book, Jesus Through the Eyes of Women. Celsus wrote this in the second century. He said, after death, Jesus rose again and showed the marks of his punishment and how his hands had been pierced. But who saw this? A hysterical female, as you say, and perhaps some other one of those who were deducted by the same sorcery. Man, Celsus, what's, what's going on here, man? This guy's kind of problematic, a hysterical female. This was the viewpoint. This was the culture. This is how they viewed women. This is how they viewed the testimony, the accounts of women, of their credibility, of their legitimacy as witnesses in that culture, both on the Gentile Roman side and also on the Jewish side. That's important for us to see because if you were inventing a religion in the first century, if you were writing a fictional gospel account, then making these women the key witnesses in that account, it would rob you of credibility. It's unfortunate to say because of how that culture was, was organized, but to do so would to be to shoot yourself in the foot if this was something you were inventing, if this was a story that you were creating. The only reason you would tell the story this way is that this is what actually happened in that culture. As McLaughlin puts it, she writes, if the gospel authors had been making up their stories, they could have made Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus the first resurrection witnesses, two well-respected men involved in Jesus' burial. The only possible reason for the emphasis on the testimony of women and weeping women at that is if they really were the witnesses as if this is really how it happened. But this is not a made-up story. This is a true account of something that happened in history that was verified by eyewitness testimony. And this is just one piece of evidence among many that gives us confidence that Christianity is not a myth or a fairy tale. At the center of Christianity is a clear historical account based on eyewitness testimony of how God acted in the middle of history to do something astonishing. And indeed, these events that Mark records are astonishing. Mark tells us how Joseph of Arimathea, a Jewish leader, a member of the Jewish council who was highly respected, 
who seems to have had some sympathy for Jesus, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. Joseph, he goes and he boldly uh, requests the body of Jesus from Pilate. He requests to take down the body from the cross so that he can bury Jesus before the Sabbath begins at sundown. And Pilate is amazed that Jesus would have died so quickly because crucifixion was designed to torture its victims and victims usually lingered for for hours and hours and days. But Jesus died uh, in a morning. So Pilate is amazed, so he summons the centurion who witnessed Jesus' death, this centurion who would have witnessed countless crucifixions, countless deaths, who would have been an expert at watching people die. He summons him, and the centurion confirms that Jesus was indeed dead. And so here we have three more witnesses to the death of Christ. We have a, a Jewish, a respected member of the Jewish council. We have a Roman authority. We have a soldier who was an expert in death. And these authorities verify Jesus' death. Pilate releases Jesus' body. He takes it down from the cross. And uh, Pilate and, and Joseph gets a linen shroud and wraps it around Jesus' body and lays it in a tomb that's cut out of a rock. And Matthew's Gospel tells us that Pilate himself ordered a guard of soldiers to guard the tomb to keep Jesus' disciples from stealing his body. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, witness where Jesus is buried. And so as we come to the end of chapter 15, do you see the finality here? Do you see the certainty of this account? Mark, as a historian, he's taken great pains to verify with a variety of witnesses that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who healed the sick, who calmed the storm, who cast out demons, who raised the dead, he himself is dead and buried. See the finality of it. But we also must see as we turn from chapter 15 to chapter 16 that the story's not over yet. Because Mark promised in the opening of his book that it was a gospel, that it was good news. And it's not until we get to chapter 16 that Mark's historical account becomes the good news of the gospel with an astonishing announcement. Because we get into chapter 16, we see that when the Sabbath had passed, just after sunrise on the first day of the week, our three faithful witnesses, Mary, Mary, and Salome, they go to the tomb with, with spices to anoint Jesus' body, to eliminate some of the smell of his decomposition. They go to the tomb expecting to find a corpse that has been decaying for two days. But what they find there is completely different. They go to the tomb and they see that the large stone has been rolled away. The guard is nowhere to be found. And when they enter the tomb, they see a young man dressed in a brilliant white robe sitting there. And he declares to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He tells them, he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. This angelic messenger, he announces to the women that Jesus of Nazareth, who had been crucified, whose death had been certified, who had been laid in a tomb, he has risen. He's not just woken up. He's not just been resuscitated. He has risen from the dead. He's brought life out of death. He has conquered death with victory. The angel tells these women to share what they have witnessed. He tells them, go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. 
The angel, he reminds these women that Jesus had told them multiple times that he was going to die, that he was going to rise again. Yet still they didn't believe it. They didn't expect it. Jesus had told the disciples back in chapter 14 that they would all fall away, but after he rose again, he would meet them in Galilee. So the angel reminds them of this promise. He told them to go and tell the disciples, to tell Peter that Jesus' promise is true, that he's risen from the dead. He's going to meet them in Galilee where their discipleship began. He commissions these women to go and share this message to be the first witnesses of the resurrection. But there is a problem. These women are absolutely terrified. They're terrified. And this brings us then from announcement to astonishment. A couple of years ago, around Easter, uh, the New Testament scholar, Dr. Esau McCulley, he wrote an article for the New York Times. And the title of this article was The Unsettling Power of Easter. The Unsettling Power of Easter. And in the article, Dr. McCulley writes, he says, Easter is a frightening prospect. For the women, the only thing more terrifying than a world with Jesus dead was one in which he was alive. Interesting, isn't it? The only thing more terrifying than a world with Jesus dead was one in which he was alive. You see, one aspect of Mark's gospel, one characteristic of Mark's gospel that that separates it, that makes it unique compared to the other three gospels we have in the New Testament, is its ending. If you look at your Bibles, you'll see a note after verse 8, which tells us that some of the earliest manuscripts Uh, don't include verses 9 to 20 in Mark 16. See, what what that means is that when we look at the earliest manuscript copies of Mark that the scribes uh, gave us 2,000, thousands of years ago, many of them end the book with verse 8. They end here in verse 8 where the women, they respond to the announcement of the angel by fleeing from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. See, the earliest manuscripts of Mark's gospel, they end with these words, for they were afraid. That's the last line. That's how it ends. And so many scholars throughout the centuries have argued that there's no way this could be Mark's original intent for his ending. Because he doesn't mention whether the women obey the angel's commands. He doesn't uh, record the appearances of the risen Christ as the other gospels do. So part of Mark must have been lost. There must be a longer ending somewhere. And it's likely that impulse that led an early scribe to to add the additional verses of 9 to 20 uh, to to the ending of Mark, to chapter 16, to give it uh, an ending that lines up better with the other four gospel accounts. But as I've read this and as I've studied this gospel and looked at the different options about a shorter or longer ending to Mark's gospel, I'm convinced that Mark intended his gospel to end in verse 8. He intended it to end with these words, for they were afraid. He intended to end his gospel on this note of fear. Now we're approaching uh, Halloween. We're approaching Halloween, which uh, brings with it an influx of of scary movies and TV shows and decorations right into our culture. But when we uh, look at the fear here that the woman experienced at the end of Mark, this is not a Halloween, this is not a scary movie or spooky kind of fear. These women aren't filled with fear because a man is chasing them with a knife trying to kill them. These women are filled with fear because a man has risen from the dead. Mark's gospel ends on this note of the woman's fear because actually 
when we look at his gospel as a whole, we see that this kind of fear has been a theme throughout the book. Back in Mark chapter 4, when Jesus calmed the storm with a word, Mark tells us that his disciples were filled with great fear. And they said, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? And when Jesus cast out a legion of demons from one man, the people who saw what happened, who saw the man sitting and in his right mind, they were, they were afraid. When a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, when she touched Jesus' garment, when she was immediately healed, she came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. When the disciples saw Jesus walking on water in the middle of the night, they were terrified. When Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John on the mountaintop, when he revealed his glory to them, Peter and the others, they did not know what to say, for they were terrified. When the women come to the, and they see the empty tomb, when they hear the angel's announcement, they flee in trembling and astonishment. They initially don't tell anyone, for they were afraid. As William Lane puts it, fear is the constant reaction to the disclosure of Jesus' transcendent dignity in the Gospel of Mark. Fear is the constant reaction to the disclosure of Jesus' transcendent dignity, to his power, to his glory, to his authority in the Gospel of Mark. Now, it's important to see that this fear displayed throughout the Gospel, when people see the authority of Christ, the power of Christ, this is not a, an anxious dread like we think about fear, something bad happening in the future. The fear described here when people see Jesus in this way is it's a reverent terror. It's an astonished awe at someone who is revealed to be far greater, far more powerful, far more incomprehensible than we could ever fathom. This fear here is the kind of fear that we see throughout the Bible whenever someone comes into the presence of the Lord, of God himself. And so these women respond with this kind of fear and astonishment at the announcement of Christ's resurrection because if Jesus is alive, if he is alive, if he is risen, that means that he is far greater. His glory and power are infinitely more transcendent than they ever imagined. If Jesus is risen, that, that means that he has authority not just over the wind and the waves, not just over sickness and evil spirits, if Jesus is risen, then that means he has authority even over death itself. It means that he has risen victorious over sin and death. It means that his glory is not just that of a good teacher, not just that of a, a miracle worker. His glory of, is that of the Lord himself. This crucified man truly is the Son of God. He is the risen king. He is infinitely worthy of our worship and our trust and our allegiance and our obedience. This is all true if Jesus is risen. You see, the women, they came to the tomb expecting a corpse, but instead they found a king. And that is terrifying. That is astonishing. That changes everything. And Mark wants us to see how astonishing that is. He wanted his original readers to see how astonishing this is. Because Mark's early readers, they were living in a time when they were being persecuted and killed by the Roman Empire. In a time where there was a, a king, a Caesar, who was claiming ultimate authority over their lives. And it would have been natural for them to fear this king, to tremble before him. 
But Mark ends his gospel with an announcement that there is a greater king. There is a greater king who not even death could conquer. A king who went to the cross, the ultimate form of torture and death that the Romans could come up with. Who endured the darkness and the weight of God's wrath and judgment for sin. A king who suffered and died in our place, but who rose again in victory. So that who, who comes bringing a life in himself that no darkness, no persecution, no suffering, no failure can ever take away. A life that stretches on into eternity. As his early readers trembled uh, in fear at the power of the Roman Empire, Mark points them to the trembling and fear of these women. He reminds them that there is a greater power, there is a greater authority that we should fear, a greater authority that we should revere. The women saw this and they fled the tomb trembling in fear. And so we're, we're left on a cliffhanger, we're left with a question. Will they believe this announcement? Will they share it with the other disciples? What about us? Will we believe this announcement? Will we go and share it with other people? Because if we think about it, we know what, what happened with the women. The very fact that Mark's gospel exists tells us that at some point the women did believe, that they did see the risen Christ. They did go and tell the other disciples. And then the disciples themselves believed. They themselves saw the risen Christ, and they started to share this announcement after being filled with the Spirit to thousands of people to the point where this announcement changed the world, transformed the world. And so we see as we read our Bibles that this astonishing announcement about Jesus, the risen king, it's actually really good news because this king has not come in power to destroy us. He has come in power to deliver us. He died and rose again to usher us into his kingdom, to rescue us from sin and death to bring us an eternal life in himself and to begin the process of restoring his broken creation. And this is really good news because our world, like the world of Mark's original readers, our world is also filled with fear. It's filled with fear. For example, we live in fear of our changing culture. We fear changing norms around sex and gender. We fear losing cultural or political power that we've gotten comfortable with. We fear what might happen in the next election or in the one after that or in the one after that. We fear that what we teach our kids might somehow be undone by what they learn in school or what they see online. We fear that uh, what the climate or the economy might look for our kids and our grandkids in the future. We fear how our own parenting mistakes might screw them up. Or maybe we fear what our HR department might ask us to sign on Monday morning. We fear what might happen if we speak our conscience at work or at school. We fear how changing technology might affect our livelihood in the future. Or maybe we fear what our bank statement might say at the end of the month. Or we fear what the next scan might reveal, what the next call from the doctor might say. We fear that our addictions and our temptations might prove unconquerable. We fear that our own mistakes, our own failures will doom us in the end. We fear that we are too broken, too ugly, or too significant for anyone to truly love us or value us. We fear that no one will truly know us. We fear that no one will truly love us. 
And in the end, we fear that death itself will bring nothing but darkness and obliteration. And you know what? If our king was still a corpse, then these fears would have real power over us. Then there'd be nothing to do but let them sweep us away. But remember, remember, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He has risen. The Son of God who endured ultimate fear in the garden, who experienced ultimate forsakenness in judgment on the cross, who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities, who was given a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. He is risen. And he is risen and reigning with a glory and an authority that is far more fearful, far more astonishing than anything we might ever face in this life, anything we might ever face in this world. And we know that this is true because this theme of holy fear, it doesn't end with Mark's gospel. It doesn't end here in Mark 16. If we turn ahead to the last book of the Bible, to Revelation chapter 1, we have John's vision of the risen, ascended Christ. And listen to how John describes Jesus in Revelation 1, 13 to 15. John writes, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Does that sound like a king who is still dead to you? Does that sound like someone that the world or sin or death or Satan could ever overcome? And how does John respond? to this glorious, to this brilliant, to this unfathomable vision of the risen Christ. How does he respond? He tells us, he says, when I saw him, I fell down at his feet as though dead. When John sees this vision, what is his reaction? His reaction is fear. He is so paralyzed by fear that he falls down like a dead man before Jesus. But then listen to what Jesus says to him. Listen to this, because this is what changes everything. Jesus looks at John, paralyzed in fear before him, and he says to him, fear not. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. <clears throat> How do we deal with our fears in a fallen, changing world? How do we deal with the fears that come from the failure in our own hearts? By looking to the glorious Son of God. By looking to the risen King who is infinitely worthy of all of our fear, but who tells us, fear not. Because this glorious King, the first and the last, he died and behold, he is alive again forevermore. He worked out his power in weakness. He accomplished his victory through a cross. 
He rose again so that in him we can stand in the fearful presence of God without fear of being destroyed. So that in him we can be delivered into the life and the security of his eternal kingdom. Fear not. Last week, if you were here, when we studied the crucifixion, we saw that as he was dying on the cross, Jesus cried out the words of Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we all have times in our lives when we feel forsaken, when we feel overwhelmed by loneliness and fear, like David did when he was surrounded by foes. But if you go and you read Psalm 22, you'll see that actually the arc of that psalm goes from forsakenness to deliverance. That by the end of Psalm 22, David, he declares, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Now listen to this. He says, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. And then in verse 30, he says, Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. You who fear the Lord, praise him. In the midst of fear and suffering, trust in the one who does not hide his face from us in our affliction, but who came and endured our ultimate affliction in our place, who rose again in power and victory and glory so that we can turn and worship before him. When you yourself feel forsaken in the midst of a fearful world, hear this astonishing announcement. Stand in awe of the one who has authority even over death. Trust in his perfect victory. Rest in his eternal reign. And then go into all the world and tell of his glory to the coming generation. Go and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Pray with me. Merciful Father, we come before you humbled as we think about just the brokenness in our own hearts, the brokenness in our world, the fear that is at the root of so much of our lives, so much of what we do, so much of how we live. Lord, we ask you this morning that you'll replace that fear. You'll give us a greater fear, fear of the one who is risen and who is reigning, who is dead but who, behold, is alive forevermore. Let that fear lead us into the joy, the wonder, the astonishment at the victory of Christ, our risen King who is reigning. Help us not to be a people who who love our neighbors, who engage the world from a posture of fear. Help us to be a people who engage the world, who share the gospel from a posture of hope and life and security and joy. Whatever we face, whatever comes our way, help us to know we have a risen King who is victorious and reigning. And let us praise you. Let us tell of your glory to others. Let us invite others into this victory, into your kingdom. 
because of the gift, the perfect work, the death and resurrection of your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. We'll, we'll respond to God's word by singing and, sin, and by standing and singing two more songs together. So, please stand and sing with us. Salvation. 
appreciation of pastors and in a small way we wanted to express our appreciation for you and Laura and your family for God's sending you here as our steward <laughs> as you bring your God's word to us yeah. and, and touch us. So thank you. Thank we you appreciate so much. Oh, thank you.
just, just know that all you ever have to do to appreciate me is just keep singing and appreciate him, right? So um, we'll go out with a word of benediction here. Thank you all for being here, for all you're doing. Um, let me just say this, that typically after the service, I go out and stand at the front door to, to greet people. Let me say this today uh, because of what we've said and sung together. If you're here, if you have questions, if you'd like to talk, if you just want to pray with somebody, I'm just going to stay right up here. I invite the elders to join me up here. Anybody who wants to pray, discuss anything about what's been said, anything else, will be here. So uh, all are welcome. Uh, let's go from this uh, word, this word of benediction from the book of Hebrews. And then may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Go in his victory today.